Welcome to the Southern Voice Rock Show. Here's your host, Jim Harris. Welcome. We have a great episode for you today that is jam-packed with rock stories. You probably first became acquainted with Head East when their gold single, Never Been Any Reason, and gold album, Flat as a Pancake, hit in the 70s. But they've been out there this whole time recording, playing concerts, and making great music. They've got a new album coming out, and we're very blessed to have founding member Roger Boyd with us today that's going to give us all the details. Tommy Talton from Cowboy and the Greg Allman Band has a great rock story for us involving Cowboy, the Allman Brothers, and Little Richard. Go figure. Also, we're glad to have Alan Walden back with us, and he's got a couple of great stories that really illustrate the fighting side of Ronnie Van Zant. So let's get into it with Roger Boyd. All right, well, we are very excited to have Roger Boyd, original founding member of Head East with us. Roger, welcome to the Southern Voice Rock Show. Uh, just a pleasure to be on. It's back peak of the Southern Boys. We just finished up a couple of days with Artemis Pyle, a fine bunch of Southern Boys. We're going to do some touring together next year. So, so you stole um, my opening question. <laughs> well... <laughs> At least in my old age, I could still do a little pilfering every now and then, right? There you go. Well, you know, it's interesting looking at the year on the calendar, but you guys have had quite a tenure. The band goes back to the 60s, and your original lineup, you know, you guys were very talent-rich. You had a lot of what I call horsepower in that lineup, and Unfortunately, bands do. That's changed over the years, and you, you've lost some original members. But then you've had guys like our mutual friend, Kurt Hansen, uh, Tony Gross, the country artist, Ricky Lynn Gregg. You've had some really top-shelf musicians in the lineup over the years, and I've seen you guys in several different decades. And one of the things that really stands out to me is that no matter who's in the band and no matter what changes have happened, the band on stage always puts together an incredible show. And the only common denominator in all of that is you. So how have you managed to keep Head East together and performing at a top level for all of these years? I think for a number of reasons. I mean, like you just mentioned, you mentioned three really fantastic musicians and folks that were in the band. Eddie's has been able to attract really top-notch talent when we had to make changes. And um, I produced the first couple of albums, you know, including Flat as a Pancake, and then our brand new one that's just coming out full circle. My consistency of the sound that I want for Head East has been the same over 50 years. The sound that we have, the attitude, the fun we bring off the stage, being good songwriters and good singers, we've always been one of the best vocal bands in the business, has really been pretty consistent. And then now the band that I've had, the guys that are with me now have been with me for 16 years, Darren Walker and Matt both uh, Greg Manahan and Eddie Jones. And the band that I have now, actually, and even the original guys, unfortunately we lost, we just lost another one in Steve Wilson. Even the original guys have met it's exactly the same sound. Darren sounds just like John Schmidt. In fact, I can't even tell the difference between them sometimes. Well, that's helped, but it's not me as much as my consistency of sound, how I think Eddie should sound, and that we've been able to track really talented folks. 
50 years in rock and roll is certainly a long time. I don't know how you would compare that to dog years. They say dog years is, you know, seven to one. So rock and roll years has got to be what, 10 to one. So you guys are at like 500 years. Over that period of time, you've had a gold album. You've had a gold single. You've had a lot of songs that charted here, Europe, Canada. Out of all of that, what stands out the most to you? What are you most proud of in that stretch of Head East? Obviously, I'm most proud of the fact that Flat as a Pancake, when we originally recorded it in August of 74, we put up the money and did that album ourselves, that it was on our own label. We ordered 5,000 albums and 508 tracks and began selling it. It's called Pyramid Records. It's our own label. And it really took off KC Radio. AOR Radio was just coming online. KC 95 Radio in St. Louis picked it up, Shelly Graffman, and they broke it wide open in St. Louis and KY 102 in Kansas City and followed suit. And that was before we got signed to AM. And the fact that so many people said bands couldn't record their own album back then and be successful with it, boy, did we uh, turn that upside down. And the fact that that album still actually, 50 years later, I can throw that album on myself. That album still sounds really good and clean and the songs are good and, and the way the band ought to sound. And then, of course, having never been in reason, it's just, you know, that's priceless. That, that's our stairway to heaven so <laughs> I think that the entire album has stood the test of time, and that's a great testament to how great the content was back in the day. A little different twist, uh, you personally had a little career sideline that's very unusual for someone in the rock and roll business. You spent some time as a college professor. How did that come about, and did you kind of uh, put Head East on hiatus while you were doing that, or did you balance the two? Actually, I got really fortunate. The music industry touring had changed. Back from the days in the 70s when we all spent a couple hundred days out of the year on the road, the music business started becoming just more of a, a summer, late spring into early fall business. And I was always going to be a college professor. I was never going to be in the music business. I just did that for fun and decided I liked that better than studying engineering in college. It was a heck of a lot more fun back in the late 60s, early 70s. And was just going to give music a shot for a while to see what would happen. Well, obviously, 50 years later, that was a pretty good decision. I always ended on going back to college and getting my PhD in teaching in school. So in 1995, when 70s rock became classy and people started turning back on to the great music that everybody in the 70s made again, and the business changed, that allowed me to go back to school, get my degree, Started teaching at college not too long after Labor Day. I threw my college robes on and professor stuff and teach. And then when spring mid May came on, I put all that in the closet until next fall and threw my rock holes on and go out and jam in the summer and all the nice fairs and festivals that were available. So it really worked out really well for me. And I've been so blessed to be able to live two dreams. It's got to be pretty cool for your students. Hey, my professor is also a rock star. Not a lot of them can say that. Well, yes. I mean, back then, I think there was maybe one other PhD in all rock and roll that, you know, that were performers. I didn't really tell my students right off the bat that I was in Head East. And uh, 
they found out generally like through their parents a lot of times as well. And it's one that that gal came in one day, my master's student, she says, my parents just canceled a, a vacation trip so that they could go to a big concert. I said, well, that's how, I mean, that's how big we were the first time around in our A days. And, and so the students would find out like that. And that was always pretty funny when they find out. Moving ahead, Head East has a new album coming out called Full Circle. And the single's already available. And the single is a cover slash remake of a Pat Benatar song treat me right but this song the version that's available was originally recorded back around i think 1980 but then you guys have gone in the studio and added some parts from the current band do i have that correct yes that is really good what happened is right before benetton got the song she must have gotten access to the song about the same time we did the head of a and r at AM records that found uh since you've been gone for us sent us that song called treat me right and we liked it, and so we thought we'd try it. We were checking out another studio and everything before we dove into the album. And so we were about halfway done recording it, maybe a little more, and the head of A&R got fired, and the last three or four people that were rock and roll people at A&M got fired at the same time. A&M was really a boutique label. That really didn't wasn't a good label for us, but anyway, great company, but they weren't rockers. You know, they were carpenters and Herb Albert and uh, Captain and Tennille, all that stuff. When they got fired, we kind of, we just stopped recording that and, and jumped into the other stuff for our album. And I had the two-inch reels of that. I've had them for, for almost 50 years. I figured someday maybe we'd go back to it and do something with it. And with the band now, I thought, now is the time. We had a nice deal from Cleopatra Records, and they are a we record label. Everybody that's on the label, about half the album is we records, and then the other half's brand new stuff. And I go, well, listen, this is the times now. And the players now are similar in style to exactly the players back then. So what we have is a combination of, of the guys who everybody calls the original band, and then the guys now you know, swapping vocal parts and swapping guitar parts and doing this and doing that. And it that song, it's just really exciting. And the other thing about it is when you're a classic rock band, the classic rock stations won't play new material. And so that song's not new. So we're really hoping that a bunch of the classic rock stations are really going to jump on it and give us some, uh, some really nice airplay on that because we're really excited about the new songs, but you, you just can't get the, the classic rock stations to play anything new. Well, just a heads up for our listeners, uh, Treat Me Right is available on iTunes and I believe Spotify and pretty much all of the streaming services. I promise you it's worth a listen. You'll really enjoy it. Tell us about the rest of the album. Full Circle. How does, uh, how does that name kind of come into play with the concept of the album? Well, after 50 years, I've come full to the sound of the band now and the sound of the band in the 70s that we got flies of pancake and midday and albums is identical. And I spent a lot of years, even with Ricky and Kurt and Tony and that, the band sounded really good, but the sound wasn't exactly the same. It was still really, really good, and it was close. 
these guys sound exactly the sound of the band in the studio and live is exactly like it was in the 70s. And I worked my way back to that because that was always my picture of how heady should sound musically with the kind of vocals we do and the lead solos we do and the synthesizer and everything else. So we kind of closed the loop on the circle. And then the fact that we were doing re-records, there's uh, four or five songs from Flat as a Pancake that we took and we re-recorded that with the technology that's available today. Of course, the guitar sounds are different. So got, you know, some of the sounds are different, but all the new technology. And then we did Treat Me Right, which is full circle time. The other band and the new band together. And then we had three really wonderful little new songs. And then we did Raise a Little Hell, too, which is an old classic, called Prisoner. And then a song called You Can't Go Home. And then a song called Say Yeah. And those will be on, all that will be on vinyl, because this is coming out in vinyl. I think we're trying to get it out late October. So it'll be on vinyl, and there'll be 10 songs, and there'll be 13 CD songs with three extra cuts. We'll be a couple of extra flat as a pancake cuts, and, and those 13 will be available for downloading on the service. It's just full circle for me, and I still got a few years left, but 15 plus years is, is a long time. I had four two bands that have continued playing straight through for 50 years. I mean, we, didn't, we never took a break and stopped for four or five years and then got back together. And a um, lot of miles, on, a lot of miles, and a lot of shows. So it, it's full circle, and the title really fits uh, what we are. And, we think that people will just be excited as could be about it, and we're very excited about this could be out on vinyl as well. I can say I am. You kind of lead into a good question. You know, we're seeing a lot of bands from what I would call the golden era that are out, and they're calling this tour their farewell or some version of that. Is that uh, something that you've considered with Head East? Are you guys thinking of winding it down, or do you plan on being out there for a few more years? we got a few more years left for sure. There's some of the bands that have come out, like like you said, they're calling it their farewell tour. That's because they didn't play for a bunch of years together. They bought back together, and they're going to do one last go-around. Also, everybody's doing it from the 70s. It's doing a 50-year thing, and which is good. Uh, everybody should be in, and mindful of how, how good it is. But we're still having a great time, and... We still love playing live, and of course, the people out there, they want to see you keep going. This record looks like it's going to do really well, and, and we'll probably follow it up with another with, with even more new stuff on it. I always said, as long as I can lift a synthesizer over my head, which I do at the end of the show when we're doing no big reason, I'll keep playing. And this weekend, I'm still able to get it up there, so it means I still got a few good years left. All right, well, Roger, I, I do need you to do one thing for me. Your, your booking agent, I need you to get him a map that also has some southern states on it because I'm not seeing enough of you guys close to me. So can you uh, take care of that? We were talking earlier, and I and, and I know when we were talking off air, when I talked to you a couple of days ago, Jim, that you had just done a, a thing with Artemis. I think it's already aired. Yes, uh, well, part of it. Yeah, and so one of the things that we're looking forward to, we think us and Artemis Plow band really makes a, a good match we're not exactly the same style but really close 
but it gives people, you know, you don't have to listen exactly the same kind of sounding band. And those guys are great guys, just like us, love to play, easy to get along with, wonderful guys. So we're hoping that the package will work out really well so we can get in some of those areas where we've played some in the past, but maybe we're not quite as strong. And so then us and Artemis, you know, flop back and forth about who plays early, who plays later. I mean, who cares these days? I just love to play. And so we're hoping that that, that will help get us back down south a little more. Well, I certainly hope so. And what a great night of rock that would be. Speaking of your shows, in the 2023 version of Head East, when you guys take the stage, I can guess part of the set list is always going to be uh, Never Been Any Reason Since You've Been Gone. Raise a Little Hell, Love Me Tonight, uh, Fly By Night Lady, but what else makes it into the set list today? One of the things that, that we're doing when I was talking about the new things that are going to be on the album, and this is something we're going to try. A great wrote a song called Can't Go Home, and Mark Martha, who's uh, really just joined us, everybody else has been with me for 15, 16 years. He's a killer pedal steel player. And can't go home. We let him play pedal steel, and it's got a really country flavor, country rock flavor, which, of course, right now, country is the is a big bull in the china shop. And actually, country is just classic rock, 70s rock with boots and blue jeans, in my opinion. It sounds a lot like it. That's really different. So we're doing a couple things with pedal steel, and A Prisoner is, is just a wonderful story song loosely based on Native American legend. So some things like that that are a little different kind of tunes, and we have a beautiful video with that that will be out shortly. A few different kind of tunes besides our really good straight-ahead singing for the rock. That's awesome. Well, I, I'm hoping that a lot of folks can get out and enjoy a live show. You did mention... Raise a Little Hell, and I know that was originally a Trooper song, and they're yeah. a Canadian band that sort of flew under the radar in the U.S., but obviously did very well in Canada, and you guys were very successful in Canada as well. Did that have anything to do with how you guys came across Raise a Little Hell, or is that just a song that was sent to you? Well, a couple of things. Number one, Raise a Little Hell is a prime example of a record company that didn't do their job and dropped the ball. <laughs> Because you're right. I mean, Trooper did really well in Canada, but they just, I mean, they barely cracked the top 100 in the United States, which is hard to believe. Almost everybody thinks that's our song these days. They don't remember Trooper, and it so fits the band. Trooper used to open for us when we were doing our headline shows up in northern Minnesota and across to the Dakotas and into Montana. Back in the days when uh, 70s rock was big in all the colleges, Trooper played on a lot of our shows and really a nice bunch of guys and always, always liked the song. Actually, I would have probably liked to have done it back in the days, but it, that was too soon. So now that that much time has passed, that's a song we opened with, and it's just a great opening song. We knew the band. And they were really excited that, that we were recording it and, and sent us some nice texts and stuff like that. In fact, they liked the way we did the song better than they did, but we got a little more horsepower, I think, than they had when we talked about horsepower. We played with the band, and I always liked the song and never forgot about it and thought, you know, one of these days we'll do it. So that's how we came about on that song. 
We recently had Todd Ronning on from uh, Bad Company and Paul Rogers' solo effort, and he's uh, Canadian. He and I were talking about some of the Canadian bands that never really got the attention they deserved, and he listed Trooper as one of his, I think, top two. So you're absolutely right. What a great band. No, they were. They were cool. And the interesting thing about Canada, which a lot of people don't understand, in fact, we almost went and recorded an album in Canada or used a Canadian producer. But back in those days, Canadian radio was nationalized. So the only things that they would play or material that was either recorded in Canada or the band was from Canada or they had a Canadian producer. So <laughs> Randy, Randy Bachman said at one time, because we played a lot of shows, Randy, Randy says, if you put a band together in Canada, you're automatically in the top 10. <laughs> Which was a little unfair to some of the bands because there was some good talent up there. So unfortunately, some of those bands did well in Canada. And Troop was a great example. And just the record companies just didn't didn't do their job when they tried to cross into the American market. And it was unfortunate. So there was some good material there. We do um Doucette's song, Jerry Doucette's uh, Mama Let Him Play. That was a little bigger in the States. A little bit a similar kind of story. We do uh, two guitars and a synthesizer, like the Southern Mock bands do the three guitars a lot of times go out and play together. Speaking of other things, although we didn't put that on the album, but that, that's a really good live song for us as well outside of our material. I really want to thank you, Roger, for taking the time to be with us today, and especially with all the information about uh, the album coming up. And I hope you'll stay in touch and keep us posted when you have a firm release date, because we'll definitely want to let our listeners know. Well, Jim, and right now we're really shooting for the end of October. Vinyl last year for the first time outsold CDs in like a couple of decades. And so all of a sudden everybody's going back to vinyl. Getting things pressed vinyl-wise is two or three months behind schedule. So we're really shooting for that. And being on with you and all your listeners out there, get out there and at least download Treat Me Right. I know you'll love it. We will let you know as soon as we have a phone release date, so I give you a call right away. We're looking forward to it. Well, when you and I get off the phone, I'm going to send you a photo, and that photo, its origin is in the green room backstage in 1988 in Louisville, Kentucky, and I believe you all were on the Choice of Weapons tour. You and I and the band spent some time together in Louisville, and I'm sure that's one of your favorite rock and roll memories. <laughs> it's a great one. Uh, and uh, besides that, when you were talking, that was a really good time, too, because uh, Ricky Lynn was in the in the band, and was always uh, a little disappointed when he decided he wanted to try and do some country stuff instead, but I was glad that he had some country success. Really talented guy. And that, that Choice of Weapons album we had uh, we had recorded down in, in Corpus Christi. And, boy, that has some nice rock. That was Ricky and Kurt. And that has some really nice stuff on it. And that was a great show. We had a great time. But, listen, thank you so much again for being with us. And, again, please keep us updated. And I hope we get a chance to have you back again. Will do. Anytime. Anytime. Just give me a call and, and we'll, we'll chat some more because we got more stories and things to tell and talk about. This week's covers, we don't have just one song to recommend, but an entire album. In 2007, an all-star tribute to Leonard Skinner dropped, 
featuring artists like Great White, The Outlaws, Blackfoot, Jim Dandy's Black Oak, Arkansas, the Atlanta Rhythm Section, and Rick Derringer covering classic Skinner tunes. You want to listen to the whole thing. All right, we are so excited to have Tommy Talton with us today sharing what arguably is just a great rock story. Tommy, welcome to the show. Hey, Jim. Thank you very much. Since you first shared this story with me, I've been really excited to get it out to our listeners. And and the ironic thing is, is it's a great Southern rock story, but the main character is not a Southern rocker and it doesn't take place in the South. So other than that, (laughs) it's a handful. Go ahead, if you will, and just kind of tell us about what happened. Yeah, I think you're talking about uh, the night. uh, It was the... the lineup for the show at the Spectrum in uh, Philadelphia. It was it was sold out. It was a great night of music, eventually. But the lineup, as strange as it may seem, was the Almond Brothers, Cowboy, and Little Richard. I was looking at a newspaper article from back then, and uh, it even mentions... The Chambers Brothers, but I don't remember them being around. I don't know why that happened. Anyway, Mr. Richard Penniman was quite the fella. Everybody knows that. In fact, I see there's a CNN program special coming on soon about little Richard. But in the end, he became a good friend of mine. And back in 1970, when we were there that night at Spectrum, he was on. He was backstage. We were back in the green room, and uh, he was telling us how the Beatles stole his songs and Paul McCartney didn't write. Uh, I saw her standing there, and he was getting treated badly. And so I left him with with that going on, and I had to go out and do our set for the show. And when we came back in, they were s- switching for him to be set up for his band. and. He walks out on stage and uh, said the promoter wasn't going to let him play and that he was unhealthy and he had cancer and he didn't know how much longer he had. Everything was uh, just going badly that night. Don't you think I should play? And, of course, the crowd agreed with him. Anyway, he had interrupted the Allman Brothers set to do this little speech, and then he came back a second time and did it again and security had to take him off the stage and anyway it was quite a night and caused quite a ruckus Dwayne was still around then it was probably about eight months before Dwayne passed on the motorcycle he wasn't upset they thought it was kind of funny at first but uh, anyway quite a night that then I want to fast forward about 33 years or so and a friend of mine, Kelvin Holly, who played guitar with Richard for many years, at least 25, the last 25, I would go and see Richard and Kelvin anytime they played near the house and if I wasn't working. And I went to a show one night in Mableton, Georgia, and uh, I saw Richard and he said, Oh, Tommy, remember this is 33 years after that night in Philadelphia. He said, Tommy, I want to apologize for that night in Philly. I was wrong. 
I'm a new man since then, and uh, I don't know. I was going crazy that night, and I'm really sorry, and I wanted you to know that, which amazed me, not only that he took me aside to apologize for it, but it was 33 years later, and, and it was still on his mind, and he was still thinking how he needed to apologize. It was a real moving moment, and uh, it showed what a wonderful human being he really was. I just wanted to get that out there. That's and a great I mean, story. He was quite the fella. Well, obviously, uh, he was an incredible entertainer, and the thought of him interrupting the middle of an Almond Brothers set just really seems out there, you know? Yep. yep. But it's great that uh, all the all those years later, he circled back around and... Uh, made amends and it's great that you all were friends for such a long time. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, the article you sent me was from the Philadelphia paper that goes into a lot of detail about this story or a lot of what you shared about it. Yeah. But you know, I saw that article about 10 years ago. Somebody sent it to me and found it because they had been at the show actually. And, uh, I don't know this. Uh, the The writer was named Frank Sadowski. I don't think he probably stayed in journalism long, uh, judging from the way the article was written. Quite frankly, but I tried to find him just to see if he was still writing or involved in some newspaper or magazine, music or anything. I didn't get the idea that he'd been to too many concerts from <laughs> the way that he worded what what was going down but that's none of my business you know you mentioned it was a story about what was it you said about it wasn't about southern rock but actually richard would argue with you on that he was from the south and he was not only from the south he was the architect of rock and roll he made a pretty him, good case with his career <laughs> Of course, him and Chuck Berry, you know, argued about that till the day they both died. You and mentioned something funny about the, the author that wrote the story. And I was researching a story about the Atlanta International Pop Festival in 69. And a newspaper in Minnesota had sent a writer down to cover the story. And he wrote about three paragraphs about Canned Heat's set. And he talked about them covering this particular song and it going over so well that the crowd insisted that they play it again and so on and so forth. And it made a great story, except that after I published the story, a guy contacted me that had been at the show and actually had a recording of Can Heat set, and they did not play any song twice, and they never played that song. So apparently... <laughs> This guy came down on the newspaper's dime and had a big fun weekend and just kind of made up the story as he went. <laughs> yeah. I kind of forgot what happened. I think I'll just have to say this. Absolutely. Tommy, thank you so much for sharing this. And we're looking forward to having you back again soon with uh, some more great rock and roll stories. Boy, you have plenty of them. Yeah, there's a few through the years, through the years. Yep. Uh, I appreciate it, Jim. And I'm looking forward to it, too. Each week we recommend music that you can find on streaming services like Spotify and iTunes. But this week we're starting a brand new feature we call Googlers. 
These are some songs that are definitely worth putting a little effort into finding, but you aren't going to track them down on the streaming services. So we're going to start out this week with a bonus three Googlers. First one is Henry Lee Summer from 1993's Slam Dunk. You want to check out the track Cry Little Sister. It's a great blues rocker. Second recommendation, Atlanta's Hydra, and there are a lot of great songs to choose from there, but we're going to start you with Rock the World. And the bonus track for the first week is from Nashville, Joanna Dean from her 1988 Misbehaving album, a cover of Gimme Shelter that I promise you is a rocker. We are so excited to have a guest back with us today that has been a favorite of our listeners. And the topic for today is also one of your favorites, Ronnie Van Zant, The legendary Alan Walden is going to tell us about the fighting side of Ronnie Van Zant. Alan, give us some stories. Well, he was one tough ass. Ronnie Van Zant had the fastest hands I've ever seen next to Ali. <laughs> I mean, he looked like a lawnmower blade coming at you with his limp fist, you know. He would jump up in the air and hit down on you, you know, so he would be taller than you. <laughs> when he fought, he wasn't a bully, you know. He wasn't a bullshit fighter, you know. You had to really do something to piss him off to get him to fight. But when he did fight, he didn't know when to stop. <laughs> he was one tough wrestler. But this guy uh, was down in Tampa, and he kept trying to get up on the stage and do his shake his ass and all that. And uh, Ronnie got tied up. When he came back in up close to Ronnie, Ronnie grabbed him and beat the shit out of this guy right on the stage. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Knocked his ass cold now, all right? Took his foot and rolled him out onto the edge of the stage and finished the song. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was a pretty uh, intense thing, you know? And the guy laid there for uh, the end of the set. <laughs> But uh, surprisingly, we never got sued for some of these things. I think he got sued for some after I was no longer the manager. But uh, until then, we kept it kind of undercover, you know? So the guy made it up on stage and Ronnie took care of business and then went right back to the song. Went right back to the song, right where he was. Man, what a story. (laughs) Well, that's Ronnie fitting his image, you know? Right. In Atlanta, party finished up with a show and everything. Go out and party and have a good time. And uh, so this guy decides he's going to move in on the girl that was Ronnie. <laughs> okay. And uh, Ronnie and I sitting there having a serious talk. We're talking business now. And we, we're going on. And uh, he says, excuse me, man. And he steps over and says, hey, man, she's with me. And uh, he came back over to me and started talking again. Uh, I'm sitting there and I look up, and the guy's pulling the girl on closer again, you know. And Ronnie stops, says, excuse me again, Alan, I'll be right back. He walks over and he says, I ain't going to tell you again, motherfucker, she's with me. And <laughs> he walks back over the way I am, 
And uh, when he gets to where I am, this guy jerks the girl across the room up against him, right? And when he did, Ronnie Van Sant gave him the worst ass whooping I've ever seen of anybody. <laughs> and this was backstage after the show? No, I think it was at a, a, a musician's apartment that was there, and we had already done the show. Okay. But anyway, this, it turns out this guy's a, a bail's bondsman. So he knows some tough-ass thugs, you know. And uh, I'm going to tell you, looking at his face was like looking at a, a monster. Everything was fucked up on his lips, eyes, everything. So I, I convinced Ronnie to get outside, and I got Gary Donahue with me, who keeps Ronnie and this girl out there in my car. I go back inside to see if the guy needs to go to the hospital. And I'm going back in and trying to help this motherfucker. I go back in and I say, hey, man, uh, I'm going to try to help you. I'm going to sue every one of you motherfuckers. I'm going to sue you and I'm going to sue this goddamn band. I'm going to do that. You'll regret ever seeing me alive. And I said, motherfucker. You already got your ass with ones tonight. If you keep talking to me like that, you're going to get a second fucking whipping right now. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, so this guy, he leaves. Two weeks later, uh, Ronnie gets a call from a friend of his down in Jacksonville who says, hey, Ronnie, I hear you got in this fight with this guy from, uh, he's actually from Alabama, but living in Atlanta at the time. He says, uh, I got a call from this guy. He says, he's trying to hire somebody to kill your ass. And uh, he said, he, he is? He said, yeah. He says, he's already talked to several tough asses that I know. And it's serious, and you need to not ignore it. So Ronnie calls me. What the hell do you think uh, we should do? He tells me the old story, and I said, well, Tell you what we should do. I said, you and Alan and Gary need to power your ass in that damn Toyota and drive to Macon. When you get here, we'll transfer over to the Lincoln, and I'm going to drive y'all to Atlanta. And we're going to find this motherfucker. <laughs> he needs to be stopped because he was really fooling with real killers. It wasn't, you know, how-how drug talk, you know? Like I said, he tries to hire somebody. Well, so I told Ronnie, he said, what do you think we should do? And I said, you get in the car, come on to Macon. I spent the afternoon making what they call dum-dum. You know, are you familiar with that? I'm not. It's where you take a bullet and you shave most of the lead off of the end. So it's just a little flat piece of metal. It ain't okay. like no full uh, bullet, you know. It's just a sheet of metal that if it hits you, it's going to knock your ass down. It may punch you in your skin. Or if you put you hit somebody in the eye, it'd put the eye out and all that. But with thin sheet metal, is something that'll knock you down, but not likely to kill you, you know? Right. So I made me about eight of those. had them in my pocket and along with my 38. And uh, we went to Atlanta. <laughs> we get up there. And everywhere we go, we know his hangout. 
he just left when we got there. Okay. I mean, we're talking about two or three clubs before we get to the last one, which is one of the first clubs we ever played for in Atlanta. When we asked him about it, he said, man, I'm going to tell you something. He was here early, and I got to tell you something. He don't want nothing to do with y'all. <laughs> he uh, says, you know, hey, let it, let it all go. So he's leaving Atlanta. Sure as hell, the guy did cut out for Atlanta. We stayed there and got drunk at the same damn ball we always had. <laughs> and they went on back home, but we never had any more trouble out of that guy. But... uh that was a pretty close call. That's a great story. For this week's Hidden Gem, we want to point you to the 1989 self-titled debut album by the band Junkyard. It was a victim of bad timing and never sold well, but it has some great rock and roll, and I think you'll really enjoy it. Junkyard from 1989. We'd like to thank our guest Roger Boyd, Tommy Talton, and Alan Walden for joining us today, and we'll be back next week with another great episode. Thanks for listening. 